Are you coming with good news and tidings, or? I'm kind of afraid at this point. I'm glad Ms. Kimberly came up because I actually have an announcement to make. Kimberly, just to make sure, second and third grade, teacher, Sunday school. Uh, first and second grade. First and second grade. So if, if you... If, we need a Sunday school teacher for first and second graders beginning April 10th. This is one of the easiest ways to serve your church is by teaching children the Bible. Winning. The greatest thing about it is that all the lessons are printed and you just follow them. And you just have to be one step ahead of the children on what you're teaching them. Um, so, well, great. Well, um, let us begin because we have a lot to cover this morning. Um, and I could go for 45 minutes or I could go for two hours, um, but hopefully I'll only go for about 20 minutes um, with our topic this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, please teach us this morning. Lord, teach us of the importance of who you are and who you have called us to be. Bless us this morning as we come and hear the preaching of your word, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to redeem sinners. And that he asks us to join him in the feast and the celebration at the Lord's Supper. And that we focus our eyes on him until he returns in glory. May we celebrate John Sartell well today in his faithful ministry. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. So um, this morning, a couple things. First, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is where we find the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. And I and keep that Bible, keep your Bible close because we are going to be reading a couple different texts this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, a, a larger text than I normally do. But I actually wanted to start this morning with actually, actually reading over the Lord's Prayer. And I had meant to do this every single week, but, but I haven't. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 5, and I'm going to read all the way to verse through verse 16. The Lord Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, And when you pray, you must, not pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into a room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. 
do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. So the second petition, your kingdom come. As a bit of review, I wanted to ask you, what does the Lord's prayer make us do? So this is going all the way back four weeks ago. I know, actually five weeks ago. I know this might be hard. But what does the Lord's prayer make us do? What's its intention? The Lord's prayer forces us to look at Jesus. It is Jesus who teaches us. It is Jesus that this prayer exemplifies. This prayer makes us focus on Jesus. And then we talked about what is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is our guide. It should guide us in how we pray and how we think about prayer. And um, this past week, I was going through the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and it says the Lord's Prayer should not only direct us as a pattern according to which we are to make our prayers known, but may also be used as a prayer so that it is done with understanding, faith, reverence, and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is our guide, but it is also a perfect prayer explaining our theology, our faith, and our future. And then we talked about what the Lord's Prayer isn't. Most simply put, the Lord's Prayer isn't a prayer for orphans. As we just read in Matthew 6, four times it talks about God as our Father. Our prayers aren't empty words to nobody listening. Our prayers are to a Father who loves us. And then we saw in the first petition, hallowed be thy name. Or in, in, the, in, the, in the preface, our Father in heaven, we see this divine act of God's transcendence and eminence together. The God who created heavens and earth is also the God that came to us to save us and redeem us in Jesus Christ. In the first petition, we, last week, we saw that we are asking God to make his name great among the nations. To make his name known so that the entire earth will glorify his name. Because it is only in the name of our God that salvation can be, set, that can be had. Because salvation comes in the name of Jesus. And today we are going to learn what we mean when we say your kingdom come. And if you have your um, uh, Trinity hymnal, go ahead and turn just almost to the very back to the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we're going to let the Shorter Catechism guide us 
on page 877. We're going to let this, though, Westminster Shorter Catechism guide us in our conversation about this second petition. Question 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. The Shorter Catechism speaks of three different kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of glory. And the, and the reason I was actually reading the Westminster Larger Catechism earlier this week is because it also speaks of the Lord's Prayer. And I think the Larger Catechism gives us a little better understanding of this kingdom of Satan. Because it says, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we acknowledge ourselves and all of mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan. And we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are acknowledging a biblical theological truth that by our very nature, we are not part of God's kingdom. Theologically, we call this total depravity. And this is a very clear teaching of Scripture. That when we are born, we are born into sin. We are born enemies of God. We are born as agents of death. And this is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following, this is, this is who we followed, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were, listen to this, by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This places us in enemy territory. So right off the bat, in this, in this petition, we are acknowledging what really might not sound correct to our culture today. That by our sinful nature into which we are all born, we are born into one of two kingdoms. The kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. Now let me ask you something. How often do you think about the kingdom of Satan? One of the questions I receive most from our students, do you believe in evil spirits? And my resounding answer is, of course, yes. Right? We don't. And we cannot open up the Gospels and read of Jesus' authority of casting out demons and believe that these are just fairy tales. 
These aren't hype stories, right? The gospel writers aren't trying to hype us up to get excited about what Jesus is going to do. The gospel writers are teaching us what Jesus is actually doing. These are true stories. And yet in our westernized minds, where science proves everything, we leave no room for this truth. We have become completely unaware of the supernatural war that goes on every single day in our lives. Paul tells us over and over in Ephesians, and in Colossians, and in 1 and 2 Corinthians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that we are in a battle, this is what he says in Ephesians 6, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. John, in his, one of his letters, said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. The biblical witness is absolutely unified. There is a supernatural battle between God and Satan. And my question for us this morning is, are we even aware that it's going on? Do we even consider it when we wake up in the morning that we ourselves are under a spiritual battle? That our children are under a spiritual battle for their souls? If I had to hedge a bet, I would probably say our view of this spiritual battle is pretty low. In our second week together, I spoke of the context of the Lord's Prayer between Matthew and Luke's Gospels. And in these contexts, it's pretty easy to see that Matthew's introduction to the Lord's Prayer is in the context of the, it's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And I call that the Sermon on the Mount kingdom ethics. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be participants in his kingdom, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. But when we looked at Luke 11, at first it's not very apparent. And I want you to let us turn now to Luke 11. It's on page 896 of your Bibles. But in Luke 11, we find the Lord's Prayer and this is what happens directly after the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is from verses 1, and then he's, he talks about it through verse 13. And pick up. we're going to pick up in verse 14 in Luke 11. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Beelzebub by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will not be your judges. But if, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his, pla- his palace, his goods are safe. But when one strong, stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's a battle going on. And it is in this supernatural cosmic battle that Jesus points to the kingdom of God, to the proof of the kingdom of God. Jesus relates the overthrow of demonic powers, sin, and the exorcisms that he performed to the presence of his kingdom. This is exactly what Jesus does when he sends out the apostles to preach the gospel. Luke In Luke chapter 9, my very first sermon I ever preached, we see that Jesus gives power and authority to his disciples, and he sends them out to preach the kingdom of God, and what do they do? They preach the kingdom of God, and they cast out demons, and they heal. Jesus is claiming his territory and casting out demons and healing. He's pushing back the darkness of the kingdom of Satan. There's a war going on and we must be aware. This is why Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. Because do you know how we win this war? With a sword, which is the word of God. One of Satan's best tricks is being sly and cunning and deceitful. And what I believe one of Satan's best tricks that he's pulling on the American church is to make us completely unaware of his existence. And you know, this follows a very important storyline because this is exactly what he did to Adam and Eve. Do you know what Adam and Eve should have done when they saw the serpent? They should have stomped on his damn head. But they were completely unaware of what he was doing. Are we completely unaware of what Satan is doing today? Are we being prepared for battle? Are we preparing our children, our covenant children for this battle? Because if we aren't aware, the kingdom of Satan will be winning. I wanted to read another text, um, but I don't have time. Um, in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, is the parable of the sower. And, and the seed is the word of God. And there's four instances, and Jesus talks about what happens when it's the, the seed is on hard ground, when it's in thorns, and when it's on good ground. And what he says specifically is that the, the ones that are on the path where the word is sown 
where they hear the word and what happens? Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Even in the preaching of the gospel, Satan and his demons are at work to hide the very words that bring life and twist them into death. When we are praying this prayer, we are petitioning God to prepare us for battle against Satan and his army. And we must be prepared. So when we pray this prayer, we are praying that the kingdom of Satan may be destroyed. And it's destroyed to the word of God. What we are also doing is that we are praying for the kingdom of, that the kingdom of grace may be advanced and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. And I only have about 10 more minutes. And I have 24 more pages. <laughs> and I, I knew, I knew most of it's, it's crossed out. <clears throat> so we have these two kingdoms that the Westminster Shorter Catechism speak about, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. And what we must understand is that these are both part and parcel of the kingdom of God, right? One is immediate. The kingdom of grace is here. We think of these as these, these two stages, the kingdom of grace that is here and the kingdom of glory that is coming. Right. And these two stages give us a lens into what we have typically called the already and not yet. And I've spoken about that many times about what our current situation is and what our future situation is. One. The already proceeds gradually. Right. And this leads very well to Jesus's teaching in the, in the New Testament, he speaks of the kingdom of God as a mustard seed, as leaven. And he constantly uses this imagery that the kingdom of God is growing without us ever even noticing that it's going on. And yet we have this kingdom of glory that is coming. This kingdom that, as any of you who have just spent, how long were we in the book of Revelation? Seven years? Just joking. Literally at least two years, right? We're in Revelation for at least two years. The book of Revelation is all about the consummation of God's kingdom. This is the biblical picture we get of Revelation 22. The king returning to reclaim his territory. Yet in this kingdom of grace, the battle is already being waged. The best Imagery I could think of, oh, I didn't think of it. I, the best imagery that I stole from somebody else is to think about the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory as two mountain peaks. And in a picture, lots of times you can see two mountain peaks, and they look like they're very close together. But if you get to the side, you see that there's one mountain peak, and then there's just miles and miles and miles of valley before you get to the other mountain peak. The first mountain peak is the kingdom of grace. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. We see very early, all four Gospels, Jesus comes on the scene and says, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Which is the same message that John the Baptist came. The kingdom is at hand. It's present. It's here. He healed people. He saved people from the kingdom of darkness and brought them into his kingdom where he is the king. The phrase the kingdom of God is used 67 times in the New Testament. The phrase kingdom of heaven, which is just a phrase used by Matthew, is used 32 times in his gospel. The word kingdom is used over 157 times in the New Testament, and it is almost always exclusively speaking of God's kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man and is sowing good seed, as we just saw in Mark chapter 4. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant with fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the water. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings a treasure of what is new and is what is old. The kingdom of heaven is the most talked about theme in all of Jesus' ministry. But the kingdom of heaven isn't just what we see in the Gospels. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said, was presupposed by the New Testament. We read about the kingdom beginning in the garden. Because it was in the garden when Adam was given dominion to rule. Adam was placed in the garden as a kingly priest to rule as God's vice regent and a priest to mediate God's presence in the earth. We see the kingdom through the Exodus. It's, it's when we, the students, we, we studied Exodus. It's, it's very interesting to see the same word being used as slave and the same word being used to, as worship is the same word. They were being taken from slavery to Pharaoh and being brought to worship Yahweh, their king. We see the, that God saved them in the Exodus to be what? A kingdom of priests. We see kingdom through David, who was promised an everlasting kingdom. We see kingdom in Daniel's vision of the future in Daniel chapter 7. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110, speaking of David's Lord who will rule over all creation. The easiest definition of the kingdom of God that I have found is that the kingdom of God is the new creation. And this is what Jesus did when he came. He brought forth the spirit of God, which what? Is the spirit of the new creation. 
in Christ, we're born again into the new creation. With Christ's spirit, we become the first fruits of the new creation. God's new creation is already here in the kingdom of grace. And you know what he gives us to sustain us in this kingdom? The sword. The word of God. The means of grace. This is how Christ rules in his kingdom now. Through you. Through the preaching of the word. Through the sacraments. You know what baptism is pointing to? We are soldiers of Christ. We are born into the family of God. We are pushing back the darkness. This meal feeds us, sustains us. Because the battle is not going to be won overnight. And it's going to be hard. We're going to fail. But it's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of love. And one day, the king of glory will come. And our faith will be turned into sight. And this kingdom of grace that is internal, this kingdom of grace that's organic, that's growing where we don't even see it. Because the the kingdom of grace goes far beyond just the bounds of this church. The kingdom of grace happens wherever the spirit of God is being proclaimed. Wherever the spirit of God is working. Because this kingdom of grace started at Pentecost. But it it will come to an end in the kingdom of glory when Christ in his second advent will come. Because you know where the kingdom of God is? It's wherever God is ruling. It's where God is carrying out his righteousness and justice. And it's where God is blessing and bestowing his kingly favor upon his subjects. To the kingdom belong all the gifts of grace. We see the theme of the kingdom of God kind of taper off after the Gospels. We, we, as I just proved, or just showed, it. The kingdom of God is all over the Gospels. You cannot read the Gospels without understanding the kingdom of God. But we don't see it as often in Paul's letters or the other letters, Hebrews, John's, Peter's, James. And what one author said, oh, by the way, I brought, I brought my books up here. These are all about the kingdom of God. If you want to read any of them, come on, let's go. Um, this I, I tried to read through this this week. I, I didn't make it. But if you want just a great entry-level book of the kingdom of God, this one by Jeremy Treat, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, Th- this is a great book. 
But what one of these books by S.M. Ball, who I have a love-hate relationship with, because S.M. Ball also wrote the Hebrew, the Hebrew syntax grammar that I use in seminary. Um, he made me learn Hebrew. But what he says in this book in his introduction is that the reason that Paul doesn't talk about the kingdom of God as much is because he's only focused on the king. Because where the king's power lays is in the power of God, which is the gospel. And this is a theme from all, that we see in all of Scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's all about God's kingdom. And what's great is that in Genesis 1, we meet the first Adam, the first king. But in Genesis 3, when that king messed up, we hear of the greater king that's going to come. And it's God himself. And this king brings new life to us. And this king tells us temptation will come. The battle is hard fought, but the battle is secure because he has won the battle at the cross and at the resurrection. When we pray thy kingdom come, we are praying that, that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace may expand, and that the kingdom of glory will come quickly in the new heavens and the new earth where every knee will bow under the headship of Christ.